Book Five, Chapter Seven of Clara Vaughan, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clara Vaughan, Volume Three, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Five, Chapter Seven. In the early morning, I was off for London taking Mrs. Fletcher with me much against my will, because she seemed to cumber me both in thought and action. Between the door and the avenue I looked from the open carriage—I hate to be shut up in summer—at the dear old house. Lily had got up to breakfast with me in spite of my prohibition, and she was going with us as far as the lodge to have a nice walk back. To my great surprise, I saw my uncle standing at his open window, wrapped in a dressing-gown. He kissed his hand, and waved me his last farewell. I leaped on the seat to reply, and then scolded him with my glove. Half in play, and half in sorrow, he mocked my lively gestures, and the morning breeze lifted his silver hair as he wafted me the last kiss. I told Lily to scold him well with my very best love, and she asked me, in the most ladylike manner, if I saw any green in her eye. The girl had picked up a great deal of slang among the fair collegians. Mrs. Fletcher looked sadly shocked, so I said to reassure her, "'You know, Mrs. Fletcher, we must make allowances for young ladies who come from college.' "'To be sure, Miss Vaughan, to be sure we must,' she replied with her most sagacious air. And at Gloucester she whispered to the coachman, "'John, the villain that stole Miss Lily, sent her to Oxford in a young gentleman's clothes, and she took a very high degree. But don't say a word about it.' "'Not by any means, ma'am,' answered John with a grin. Nevertheless, it found its way over the house, and the result was that all the girls came to Lily about their sweethearts. I mention this trifling incident only to show how little I thought that I then saw the last of my uncle. At Paddington we met Annie Franks taking her ticket for Gloucester, and looking most bright and blooming, with a grand pocket in her cloak made to hold a three-volumed novel. I had only time for a few words with her, in which I commended my uncle to her especial attention, as she had ten times my cousin's experience. Then I went with her to the down-platform, and saw her get into the carriage, and gave her the last of my sandwiches, while a cruel god made her turn out her new pocket, insisting that she must have a little dog concealed there. I laughed at the poor little dear, as crimson with mortification she showed before all the gentlemen the triple-fluted bulk, and the guard read out, more in amazement than rudeness, Sir Ingomar of the Red Hand, or the Knight of St. Valentine and the Paynim Lady. The gentlemen were gentlemen, and tried very hard not to smile, but the way the guard scratched his head was a great deal too much for them. "'Dog's ears, anyhow!' cried he, trying to escape with a joke. 
I drew her out of the carriage, with tears in her soft grey eyes, and put her into another, where Sir Ingomar was unknown, and might spur on at pleasure. Then the smiles returned to her shy and innocent face, and she put her head to the window, and whispered gently to me, "'Any strawberries left, dear?' "'I should think so, Annie. The best of them all. The British queens are just coming in, and such a crop of grapes!' Annie's conception of perfect bliss was to sit upon a shady bank, the breeze just fanning her delicate cheek, with a cabbage-leaf full of strawberries by her, and a cut-and-thrust novel upon her lap. Off she went with a lovely smile, foreseeing all these delights. From Paddington we drove straightway to the lodgings of Conrad Fawn. As we jolted along the new road, which always has more holes in it than any other street in London, I lost my wits in a tumult of thick, tempestuous thought. What would Connie say to see me? Me, the haughty Clara, coming all impatiently, even in quest of him? Would it not have been far better, far more like an English maiden, to wait and wait and wear the soul out, rather than to run the risk of misinterpretation? True, it was for his father's sake to save him from deadly peril and to make his happiness complete. But might not all have been done by messenger, as well as by me in person? So at least might fancy those who did not know our enemy. Worst of all, and Claudius thought that filled the eyes every time it came, would he love me still? Would not the strong revulsion that must have torn him in two when he dashed his hand on his forehead and forgot even man's forbearance would not must not this have snapped all the delicate roots of love i could not tell of man's heart i know nothing but i felt that with me a woman such a horrible thing would create only longing to make amends Mrs. Fletcher, how is my hair? Lovely, my pretty child. She always called me so from habit when no one else was present. You look your very best, and I'd like to see them that could talk to me of lilies, indeed, when our Miss Clara— No smuts on my nose, Mrs. Fletcher, I hope. I never feel sure in London. You don't know London, you see. No, my pretty, as clean as a whistle, and as clear as the voice of a maybird. Every atom of you. There's no such complexion nowhere, out of Gloucestershire, or in it. It's all along of the brimstone and treacle I give you when you was small. Talk to me of lilies. Why, I see three great butter-spots as big as the point of a needle and I know by the make of her boot that her little toe turn over. And what's more than that, Mrs. Fletcher, I won't hear a word of it. As to her little toe, I can most solemnly declare that you are wrong altogether, for I have seen her naked foot, and a lovelier one never was. Take yours out of the way, miss, but— But here we are, and you have made my cheeks quite red. I shall be ashamed to be seen. However, it did not matter, for there was no one there to see me. 
Conrad was gone to Paris. He had quitted London quite suddenly, and there was a letter left for his sister, which the girl forgot to post till she thought it was too late. And he said very likely he should go on to Italy, and they were not to keep the rooms if they had a chance of letting them, only to put away the things he had left in the cupboard. So I took the letter, directed, Miss Isola Ross, but I did not dare to open it, much as I longed to do so. Having enclosed it in a new envelope and posted it in the nearest letter-box, with a heavy heart I re-entered the cab and went on to Mrs. Shelfer's. Mrs. Shelfer was, of course, surprised to see me so soon again. Nevertheless, she was all kindness and hospitality, as usual. The residue of her little debt had been long ago released, and now I paid full rent, for I could easily afford it. In answer to my eager inquiries as to what had occurred since Wednesday, the little woman said shortly, "'Nothing at all, miss, of any account, I thank you. Only Charlie threw double size three times running, and one—' "'I don't mean that, Mrs. Shelfer. I mean what has happened for me.' "'Nothing, Miss Bourne. No, nothing to concern a great lady like you. Only such a queer lot come, and they seem to be friends of yours. They ain't gone from here more than half an hour ago.' "'Tell me all about them.' "'They come and ringed the bell, as modest as could be. And when I went to the door, says they, "'If you please, where be Miss Clara, ma'am?' "'Miss Clara,' says I, "'a set of dressed-up trollops like you. "'Come and ask for Miss Clara.' "'She'd Miss Clara you pretty quick time, I doubt, "'if she was only here.' "'Us humbly hopes no offence, ma'am,' says the great big man, "'the biggest man as I ever see without paying. "'Only us has come up from the country, ma'am.' "'Up from the country,' says I. "'Needn't tell me that, my good giant. "'Any fool can see that. "'And if you take my advice, "'you'll clap your hat on and go down again "'and thank God for it.' "'You see, miss, he had got his hat off, "'and he standing out of doors "'on the shady side of the street. "'So what I said seemed to stop him altogether, "'and he looked as if he wanted to think about it.' and I was just a slap in the door in their faces, when the other man, the queerest guy I ever see, a hanging in his clothes like a skiver in a dish-clout, he looked full in my face, as grave as a heretic parson, and stretch out his skinny arm, and keep time with one foot, while he say, or sing, "'Mum, us be here now, in this London town, and it bain't likely as we be going down.' till us see every mortal thing as there be for to see and take all the change out in a thorough-going spree then the big man laugh and clap him on the back and the little one wink both his eyes and look to see what i think of it then when he see me laugh he make such a curious bow that what with his what do they call the place to miss Diaculon, perhaps you mean, Mrs. Shelfer. Oh, that's the word. What with his strange diaculum and his dancing altitude, I declare, 
I was almost a-going to invite them in. But I recollects. No, no. If Charlie gets along of such originals as these, I may stand at the bedroom door and whistle for a week. There's nothing Charlie loves so much as a downright Reginald. Poor, simple-minded woman! How little she perceived that she of all the number was by far the most original! And like most of those who are truly so, she would have taken the imputation as an outrageous insult. Only the sham original glories in being thought queer. Well, Mrs. Shelfer, I want to hear the end of it. Just what I say, miss. Yes, yes, no time to spare, and the pudding boiling. So I says, quite sharp, What name, my good sir, and will you leave a message? Miss Vaughan is out of town. Well, says he, just as I tell you, miss, only please to say, ma'am, as Jan Uxtable and Beanie Dore and the two biggest of the chillers has doed theirselves the honour of coming to leave their duty. Then the little girl look up, and she flash her ribbons and say, Mr. Uxtable, if you please, ma'am, and Mr. Ebenezer Dore, and Miss Uxtable, and Master John, as called. "'Hadn't you better write it down, miss?' says I, as innocent as possible. "'Do you suppose I can't, then?' says she, with such a spitting out of her eyes, and she swinging a new parasol. "'Just give me a sheet of paper, if you keep such a thing in the house.' "'Please to excuse the little wench, ma'am,' says the big man, quite humble. "'Us can't hardly make ed nor tail of her since her come to this ere Lunnon. "'If I'd only knowed it, I'd have had her mother along of me, "'that I would ease vay, and the coo be her own midwife. "'But only, please, you say Jan Uxtable come, "'if they count it decent here away. Three score acres and five, ma'am, without reckon the cleave.' and no man have a call, to my mind, to christen himself Mr. on less than an hundred acres, in London or out of it. "'Very well, sir,' I says, for I took to the big man somehow. "'I will deliver your message. Miss Vaughan only went from here of middle day on Wednesday. "'And tell her, please, if she do come back,' says spirity Miss Parasol, with the tears in her great blue eyes, that Sally Uxtable leave her very best love and duty, and hope so much Miss Clara will come to see the great wrestling to-morrow, twelve o'clock, and be early, and they be betting now two to one on the other man, ma'am. But he have no chance, no more than Tim Badcock with father. I be much afeard, ma'am, says the deep-voiced man, as soft as any bell, I be afeard our Sally will be bigger by a lanyard, nor ever her daddy or her mammy was. But likely it be all for the best. And with that, all four of them crooked their legs to me most polite, and went on round the corner. And after them went a score of boys that seemed to follow them everywhere. The boys knew all about it, and so did I at last that it was the great champion wrestling 
that is to be to-morrow. Charlie have been mad about it going on now two months. And can you please tell him, miss, which way to lay his money? To be sure I can. Let him take every offer of two to one against the Devonshire champion, and if he loses I will make it good to him upon condition that he gives you everything he wins. Now please to let me have a cup of strong tea. Having thus got rid of my most talkative friend, and Mrs. Fletcher having started off to buy something, I had time to think a little. It was nearly two o'clock on the Friday afternoon. Nothing more could be done at present towards recovering Conrad, for he had not even left at his lodgings any continental address. Possibly his place of sojourn might be revealed in the letter to his sister, posted by my hand. But it was far more likely that he himself knew not, at the time of writing, where he should find quarters. I must have been beside myself with worry and disappointment when I dropped that letter into Her Majesty's box, for if I returned, as had been arranged, by the express at five o'clock, several hours would be saved in the delivery of its tidings, and as yet I little dreamed where I should be at five p.m. In that little room, whose walls were more relieved than decorated by certain daubs of mine, which even in my narrowest straits I could not bear to part with, because an indulgent critic had found merit in them, a discovery requiring much acumen, here I now sat, gazing fondly, dreaming hazily, yearning strongly for the days gone by, yet only three months old, when I had not a crust or dress till I earned it by my labour. How that pinch enlarged my heart, God only knows, not I. Ah, then I was a happy girl, though I never guessed it. How proudly I walked down the square with my black straw bonnet on, which idols called the dowdy, and my dark plaid shawl around me, the plainest of the plain, yet not prepared to confess myself so quotidian as my dress. Who could tell, in those happy days, who might come, or round what corner, and who could say whether of the twain would look the more accidental? And then the doubt. Shall I look or not? Better, perhaps, be intent on the fire-plug, and make him come round again. But now, ah me! They have heaped up riches for me, and who shall come to enjoy them? Just as I was warming to this subject, gushing along in a fine vein of that compassion, which alone of soft emotions we find it no duty to wrestle with, I mean, of course, self-pity, in came Mrs. Fletcher suddenly, and in anger. "'Well, Miss Clara!' she exclaimed, throwing down her parcel. "'So this is London, is it?' "'To be sure, Mrs. Fletcher. "'What objection have you to make to it?' "'No objection, miss. "'Only this, "'that if ever I seen a set of countryfied folk, "'the Londoners are them. "'Why, the commonest of our kitchen-maids "'would be ashamed to talk so broad "'and to dress so contemptuous. 
and here i went half a mile to buy boots real london made and trees all along by the side of the road and pots on the shelves of the windows i never if gloucester don't look much more like a town as mrs fletcher did not tell a story with the herodotian vivacity of tim badcock i will render her facts in my own unpretending version premising only that she had taken the farmer and sally for specimens of the true cockney a bit of saltatory reasoning of which she has not heard and perhaps never will hear the last while then the worthy housekeeper was driving a slow but shrewd bargain in a smart shop by the broadway taking the boots to the sunshine to pick clever holes in the stitching she observed a diminutive boy of the genuine shoe-black order encamping in a bite or back eddy of pavement just at the side of the door this little fellow was uniformed or rather multicoloured in gold red and green his cap was scarlet and edged with gold twist his tunic red and his apron of very bright green bays on his cap and on one shoulder appeared his number thirty-two in figures of brass an inch and a half in length strapped on his back he carried an oblong block of wood like a great club foot and nearly as large as himself this he deposited with elaborate fuss on the curb of the inner pavement which terraced some inches above the true thoroughfare a blacking-jar hung at one end of his block from a drawer below he pulled out three well-worn brushes and began to hiss and to work away in double-quick time with both hands at some boot projected towards him on the delicate foot of fancy as he grew warm at his work with one sharp eye all the while looking out for a genial passenger there slowly came straggling towards him a bevy quite fresh from arcadia first in treble importance walked impressively rolling and leering around hermes pan and the owl of pallas combined in one ebenezer door his eyes never too cooperative roved away upon either side in quest of intelligence which they received with a blink that meant pooh don't i know it with occasional jerks of his lank right arm he was dragging along like a saw through a knot the sturdy tight-buttoned and close-pronged form of our little jack jack was arrayed in a black wide-awake with blue ribbons and a brand-new suit of broad-furrowed corduroy made of nights by his mother and suki and turned out with countless pockets each having three broad buttons to foil the london thieves in one of these pockets the trouser one i do believe in spite of all sally had taught him he was now chinking to the creak of the corduroys his last abiding halfpence and lagging heavily on the poet's arm he cast fond glances at a pile of glorious peg-tops sticking her toes into little jack's heels to kick anybody that dared to steal him came my little sally all fire and wonder and self-assertion towing her mighty father along like a grasshopper leading an ox 
At times she strove to drag him towards the finery of the windows, and paid very little heed to his placid protestations. "'Walk fitty, my dear. Walk as you ought to do, my dear. Oh, fay, oh, fay, whatever will they Londoners think of Devonshire if they sees you a-going on like this here? There, dang that beany door, blest if I bain't a turn in poot too. Cometh of larnin to write, I reckon. The farmer's pockets were crammed with circulars, handbills, and puffs of every description, which he received from all who offered, and was saving them all for his wife. "'Clean your boots, my gentleman,' cried a shrill little voice. "'Clean both your boots for an apney. Never say die, sir. Polish em bright till the cat at home won't know them. Three fardings worth of blacking, and a penny in skill and labour and all for the laughable sum of one apney, Pure satisfaction guaranteed, or the whole of the money returned. Up with your foot, my gentleman. The farmer pulled up suddenly for fear of walking over him, as the boy, despising Beanie Dore, had dashed in between Jack and Sally and danced before Mr. Huxtable. His brushes were whisking about like bumblebees roughly disturbed and already menaced the drab of the Sunday fustian gaiters. "'Zober now!' cried the farmer, who could not believe that he was addressed, having never dreamed in his most ambitious moments, if any such he had, of ever being called a gentleman. "'Zober now, will he? Where beest going to, thou little o's bird? Be they your Lunnon town manners?' "'Let alone, I say, let alone now, will I?' as the boy got more and more tentative. "'Art alive! Can't he see they be my Sunday gaiters? Oh, if my missus were here! And he bain't more nor nine year old! Well, well, wherever do he go to school?' "'Institution sixty-six. No children or females admitted.' Up with your foot, old bloke. Do the young'uns and tutor half price. Just two minutes to spare till the Duke of Cambridge's turn. Great exhibition polish, and all to encourage the fine arts. The good farmer was lost beyond hope in the multitude of subjects pressed all of a pulp on his slow understanding. Nevertheless, he had presence of mind to feel first for his watch and his money, and then for the best pocket-handkerchief stitched into the crown of his hat. Meanwhile the boy got hold of one foot, and began to turn up his gaiters. Then Sally and little Jack rushed to the rescue, and Jack punched the boy in the face, while Beanie Dore looked on with a grin of broad experience. But in spite of all aid, the farmer began to collapse before his mosquito enemy, when luckily three giant lifeguards, for a crowd was now collected, opened their mouths like the ends of a monkey fur muff in a round and loud guffaw, with a very coarse sneer at poor Sally. The farmer looked at them in much amazement, then his perplexity went like a cloud.
and his face shone with something to do as he gave Sally his hat to hold. Till now all the mockers had been too small for him anyhow to fall foul of. Ere the echo of laughter was over, the three dandy lifeguards lay on their backs in the mud, with their striped legs erect in the air like the rods of a railway surveyor. The crowd fell back headlong, as if from a plunging horse, then laughed at the fallen and with the conqueror. Even the boy was humility, multiplied into civility. "'What be up to all of thee?' asked the farmer, replacing his hat. "'Can't none of thee let a peaceable chap alone? And what will they chillers think as come here to get example?' "'Why, Beanie, if us had knowed this, us would have brought Bill Constable with us.' "'Now he don't know nothing about it,' he remonstrated with the admiring multitude. "'One of them three weren't throw handsome like, only three pins, I tell ye. But us'll do it over again if he claimeth it.' "'Can't do nothing vitty since I leaved my missus at home.' But her wouldn't come, God knows. These last two remarks were addressed to himself, but the crowd had full benefit of them. Weren't he asking of leave, two or three minutes agone, little chap with the brisk there, to tend my butts and take it almost without asking? Us be bound, Lake, to stop here now till us sees if them lisher men feels up for any more ply. Do as he please, little chap, soon as Sally hath turned my best gaiters up, if her bain't too grand in London. With bright ribbons fluttering and finery flapping about her, poor Sally knelt down in a moment to work at the muddy fustian. But her father would not allow it. He had only wished to try her, so he caught her up with one hand and kissed her, and I think from what Mrs. Fletcher said, he must have given her sixpence at least. It is needless to say that although the boy worked with both hands in the most conscientious manner, the farmer's boots defied him. Neat's foot-oil and tallow and beeswax held their own against Day and Martin. "'Coom, little chap,' said Mr. Huxtable kindly. "'Thee hast do thy very best, but our Zuki will have the laugh of thee. "'Teach thee, perhaps it will, to be soberer next time, "'and not be quite so pert as to do a deal more than thee can do. "'But thee hast used more ink than I would over two copies. "'Here be a groat for the exhibition polish.' In this little episode, as will be manifest, Sally has helped me more than Mrs. Fletcher. But now to return to my narrative. Almost directly after the housekeeper left me, Patty came trotting in with a large white breakfast cup full of most powerful tea. I cannot help thinking that the little woman put some brandy in it or allowed Mrs. Fletcher, who trusted much in that cordial, to do so but they stoutly deny the charge, and declare that there was only a pinch of gunpowder. Whatever it was, being parched with thirst, I swallowed without tasting it, 
and the effect upon my jaded brain was immediate and amazing. All self-pity was gone, and self-admiration and haughty courage succeeded. Was I, Clara Vaughan, who had groped and grubbed for years to find the hole of a blasting snake, and had now got my hand upon it, was I to start back and turn pale at his hiss, and say, God speed you, and polish your skin, give me your slough for a keepsake? Would I not, rather, seize the incarnate devil, trample his spine, and make his tongue sputter in dust? In a moment my cloak and hat were on again. I scarcely looked at the glass, but felt the hot flush on my cheeks as I lightly skipped down the stairs and silently left the house. What to do next I knew not, nor asked, but flew headlong before the impulse to lift and confront, as is my nature, the danger that lay before me. As I glided along, I was conscious of one thing. The people in the street turned in surprise to watch me. As if by instinct I hurried straight to Lucas Street, my courage mounting higher and higher as I neared the accursed threshold. Balaam and Balak stood at the bar of a tavern which commanded a view of the street, but were much too busy with beer to see me passing so swiftly. Loudly I rang the bell of number 37. The figures were bright on the door and looking narrowly I perceived the old number nineteen more by the lines than the colour. Old Cora came as usual, but started at seeing me, and turned as pale as death. "'Is your master within?' I could not use his false name. "'Yes, miss, but you not see him now.' "'Dare you to disobey Our Lady's heart?' and I held my gordit before her. She cowered with one knee on the mat, and kissed it, then led me into the presence of Lepardo della Croce. End of chapter 7